1: Hello and welcome to Oh What A Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was absolutely rubbish. I'm Chris Scull. I'm Tom Crane.
2: And I'm Ellis James. Each week on this show we'll be looking at a new historical subject and today we're going to be discussing the classes of Victorian Britain.
0: The upper classes, the middle classes and some of you will be ahead of me the working classes as well the job lot
2: <laughs> well when you got to working classes people who were really hoping you'd say working classes all went
0: yes <laughs>
1: high-fiving the upper classes the middle classes and fanny blankers cohen <laughs> all right so we're going to be talking about victorian classes but before we get into that let's have a little bit of correspondence thank you to billy lucas who's been on and he's from Dagnum, Billy Lucas, and he says, I was a boy from Dagnum, although my mum wasn't a sugar-in-tea-drinker, I was very often given tea in a baby bottle as a toddler, and it was definitely quite normal in my very large extended family in Essex. So I think this may well be an Essex thing, but it always seemed perfectly normal to me. I think we've got to the bottom of this. It's something that occurred only in Essex.
0: We should probably give the context for people who didn't hear that episode. This isn't a, an email that's come apropos of nothing. A guy's just decided to tell us about his tea in, in bottles. Chris was served tea in a bottle as a
2: baby. With a couple of sugars in it as well. An absolutely, fun, very, I mean, very appropriate for today's episode, but a very 1880s approach to parenting. <laughs> they were trying to get the most out of you as you, as you, as you uh, tried to operate the spinning jenny, that loom. Missing a couple of fingers, age five, bringing valuable pennies into the household.
1: So last week we asked for facts that would be demonstrably true in 500 AD. Andrew's been on. You go back in time, 500 AD, you go up to a bloke and you go, this is his idea. Tusks are congealed hair. Oh, nice.
2: I don't think there's anyone in 500 AD, believe you. No chance. Here I am in
1: 2023,
2: and I'm not impressed. I just don't think they'd believe you. I think they'd say, why are you lying? Yeah. Where are you from wearing these crazy future clothes? Your teeth are in fantastic, Nick. And why are you lying to me about that of all things?
0: I also think, Ellis, at that time, they'd have had more important things to be dealing with than facts. I think survival, <laughs> basic
1: survival, saying I haven't got the time to deal with this. <laughs> You're hustling someone who's
2: been fighting off a woolly mammoth. Away. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know, 500 AD, 500 years after the birth of Christ, you've had the invention of agriculture. People are quite settled. Mary oh, OK.
0: Yes, that's true. That's very true.
2: You've got religion, you've got agriculture... You've got you know like some early towns which still exist, would be recognisable. So yeah, he'd be like, yeah, I'm ready for some facts. I'm not saying they'd be having a lunch break, but ready for some facts. They're, yeah. not, they're not it, having a tea when break. When does it
1: start? When does it start getting really hairy? If you go back to 100,000 BC, is that where you're having to wake up and wrestle a saber-toothed
2: tiger before breakfast? Well, then you've got Neanderthals around. So yeah. you're like, listen, don't don't have sex with him. Because in a hundred thousand years' time, that's going to cause a couple of autoimmune sort of based illnesses. You're going to be called ankylosing spondylitis, Crohn's disease. That will all come from you finding that Neanderthal attractive. So leave it. You know what it's like with daughters. You say, "Don't get with that guy." It's only going to wear him on. And I don't mean Neanderthals as a, pe- as a pejorative. I mean he's a different species to you. So just please leave it.
1: Um... All right, there's a bet. I think Shane Keeley wins 500 AD fact of the week. So Shane's going back to 500 AD and he says, I would know the component parts to make gunpowder in 500 AD. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, He does add that unfortunately he does not know where to find or process the (laughs) the involved ingredients, therefore making the task somewhat difficult
0: but then he can't do he can't do everything can he i mean i mean surely being the ideas man is enough of that it's all right to go do you know what i've done that legwork
2: there's that famous book guns germs and steel the fates of human societies and it's it's why eurasia and north african civilizations have survived and conquered others came up about 25 years ago it's a great book. When I think won the Pulitzer Prize, right? I'm actually looking at my copy of it right now. But imagine how hard you'd be if you could go back in time with a machine gun. <laughs> you'd be like, "Bring it on, mate!" <laughs> just, just you wait till I pull the trigger on this. You
1: know, you know what? If I was going to mass manufacture a time machine, stick a little machine gun in there. Yeah, because you're pretty much you're fine. Yes, yeah, you can go back wherever you want.
2: There's absolutely... You'd be so confident. It'd be like like walking into a pub with a hard (laughs) block. Isn't
0: this once again just the storyline of The Terminator? Isn't that what it is? Yes, (laughs) yeah. We've once again stumbled into (laughs) (laughs) Like clockwork, this podcast has stumbled once again into the storyline of The Terminator.
2: Yeah, um, unfortunately, I watched The Terminator quite recently, so it will... Everything comes back to The Terminator. (laughs)
1: Last week we asked you to send on if you have any distant historical relatives of note and Richie Peel's been on. Recently he's, uh, he's noticed the Napoleon movie is out and he thinks we might like a relative of his. His great granddad played the side drum at Napoleon's funeral. This is when Napoleon was exiled on St. Helena by the British. His great granddad was stationed there with the Lancashire Fusiliers. My, he says, My grandad had the very drumsticks that were used until some kid from down the street took up playing the drums and his soft hearted granddad gave them to the kid because he couldn't afford to buy them. Wow. He says, It may not have been worth Maradona's shirt levels of cash but probably would have fetched quite a few quid at auction. That's incredible. Oh, dear, you know, that's an incredible story, but also the amount of historical relics that uh, just... Dis- no one knew what they yeah. were.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I did get in a time machine and went back to 580, any time anyone was going to put something in the bin, I'd be like, leave <laughs> that! <"Lima>! It's fine! <laughs> we'll use that that's very valuable we'll try and to piece together the way you lived in about 1500 years time we just kind of need it don't put in the recycling please that is
0: quite a, that's quite a good thing to take back in the DeLorean with you then just a black bin back so you can just sort of <laughs> <laughs> just fill them up with loads of loot whatever they've got Chris are we going to address the elephant in the room which is that clearly neither of us, it's embarrassing to say on a history podcast, we're entirely sure which way 500 AD was.
1: What do you mean? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, both of us, I arrogantly said that people would be worried about survival, wouldn't be interested in the task thing.
2: Well, I still think it's hairy. I, th- I, th- I think life is still difficult in 500 AD. <laughs> okay, fine, fine,
1: fine, fine. I accept you're not beating off woolly mammoths, but it's still hairy.
2: You're not waking up in 500 AD going, do you know what? Yesterday was a piece of piss.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do you know what I would describe life as hairy until the late eighties. <laughs> you know. Once, once you get forensics, that's only that's the only point at which I would be comfortable. So, for, you know, even the sixties, the fifties, I'd be, I'd be nervous.
2: Yeah, my parents tell me stuff about their bringing in the fifties. And I'm like, that sounds absolutely bonkers. Like, my mother, when she was in re- a, a, what would now be called reception class, was walking to school on her own. It was like three miles. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. said, but, Mum, like, you, what, what do you mean? She said, oh, there were other children on the route. I said, well, but
0: there were other lost children who'd been out there for days.
2: <laughs> yeah, she said, no, no.
1: Imagine letting your kid in reception class out. Just opening the door. Go and have a good day. See you
2: later. <laughs> it's that, it? crackers. <laughs> my dad was getting the bus to different villages at about three. <laughs> in case anyone sort of uh, I retrospectively worries about my mother's welfare, everyone did this and it was fine. <laughs> but but it just sixty years on. It was well, sixty five years on. It it seems absolutely crazy.
1: Yeah. Um. Shall we end the correspondence on a one-day time machine? Cue the jingle. It's
0: the one-day time machine. It's the one-day time machine. It's the
1: one-day time machine. It's the one-day time machine. Sam Allen's been on. He says many of his preferred daydreams for a one-day time travel pass are related to music and seeing bands that he never got the chance to see. However, no no matter how special the gig, even Live Aid, it's still just a gig. But then he says recently he found out about the Harrison Clapton guitar duel over Patty Boyd. Ellis, have you heard about this?
2: I know that Patty Boyd left George Harrison for Clapton and they remained friends.
1: The two of them, Harrison and Clapton, had a guitar duel. And this is what Sam Allen would like to go back to see. He says, see these two in their prime duelling to best one another over the love of a woman. I just don't think that could be topped. I looked into this a bit. I'd I'd never heard of this. So Harrison invited Clapton and Boyd to his Oxfordshire mansion, where it was suggested they battle it out for Boyd over guitar solos. And just to make it even more mad actor John Hurt who was a friend of Harrison was there and watched it Hurt later said George needed a small audience he got two guitars two amplifiers put them up in the hall when Eric turned up with Patty George invited him to play and George had given Eric an inferior guitar and amplifier it's like something out the wrestling <laughs> Clapton's biographer Ray Coleman said the two men improvised for two hours in a historic guitar battle of superstars and that ultimately Clapton won. What a thing to go back and witness!
2: That is amazing. I didn't know that. I'm a, I'm a big Beatles nut and I didn't know about that.
0: The opposing point of view that I think that would be the most cringeworthy, awkward thing you could ever say. <laughs> I know they're incredible musicians, but two men playing for two hours trying to do really cool guitar <laughs> licks to impress something is the lamest thing I've ever heard.
2: It's, it's like something out of Bill and Ted. <laughs>
1: <laughs> really Sam Allen's going back to watch it. It would be fascinating. Well, there you go. If you've got any more correspondence, anything, on any of those subjects we just touched on, here's how you can get in touch with the show. All right, you horrible lot. Here's
0: how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us
1: at hello at ohwhatatime.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ohwhatatimepod. Now, clear off.
2: Well, this week we are discussing the Victorians and we've gone uh, working class, middle class, Upper class slash the aristocrats. Uh, and I'll be discussing the aristocrats.
1: And I'll be talking about the middle classes.
0: And I'm going to be talking about the working classes and, more specifically, their eating habits and how they dramatically changed over time. So, boys, the... I think it's worth giving a bit of context before we get into this. The No section of British society during the Victorian era and the 19th century in general changed more than the working classes. There was a huge shift in where they were at the beginning of Victoria's reign and to the end. Now, one of the, sort of the fundamental changes, of course, was at the start of Victoria's reign... Relatively few of them had any access to formal education. By the end of her reign, primary education was compulsory. Now um, first of all, I want to ask you about this. How would you feel? Do you think you'd be pleased as a school child if you were the first lot to have to go to school?
2: My grandmother, my father's uh, mother was really, really poor in the 20s and 30s. She lived in a Pit Village, and her father had died in World War One. So I had, you know, threatened with the workhouse, all that kind of stuff. And her brother was very bright and passed his eleven plus, but then had to leave school because he couldn't afford the books, and that yes. really, really affected my grandmother. Um, so. Fast forward to the 90s When I was at school And I had quite a lackadaisical attitude To homework and revision And she would would almost be in tears Saying your Uncle Will would have loved To have had your opportunities Do you think Tom That I gave a fuck (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that had any impact on me At all Or do you think That I continue to watch television And coast through school
0: so this was kind of one of the, the fundamental changes was uh, the access to education but the other one of the other key changes in the experience of uh, being uh, poor or working class in Victorian Britain was the way that they ate so life I think we can agree if anyone 's seen <laughs> Watched any documentaries or seen Oliver any of this lot you realise that life was hard basically Um, uh, if you're working class in Victorian Britain infant mortality was high pregnancy was dangerous infectious diseases like tuberculosis influenza whooping cough were like everywhere work was extremely dangerous and they didn't even have good food to look look forward to now I'm like it's Having a good meal. Look, food is such a thing for me. Love. Like, I don't know if you like this, but if I'm having a bad day, I have to focus on what I'm going to get to eat.
2: If I think I'm not going to be able to eat something nice, I really panic.
1: Yeah, I, I think I might be the opposite. My really? wife's been away. Yeah, I think my wife. My wife's been a few away for a few days this week. It's been stressful looking after both kids on my own, and then when it gets to dinner time, the last thing I want to do is cook anything that's going to require some mental capacity. So, field pasta. The cottage pie that's been in the freezer for about ten years. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> ten years. I don't care. Get it in. Essentially, a relic ten. of a different
0: time. Top with potatoes that were mine. Like, sort of pulled up before the Berlin Wall <laughs> fell. <laughs> so, so food was kind of. It was interesting. They, they, they the part of the reason that uh, eating was not that fun and that during the early years of Victoria's reign was because. Um, food was so expensive. And that was partly because of the corn laws kept food prices artificially high. And a lot of workers were paid a proportion of their wages in the form of credit that was only spendable in company stores.
2: Yes, big thing in Wales, is the truck shop. Yes, exactly, yeah, the truck
0: yeah. shop. Yeah, so, so you couldn't go and spend... Your money wherever you wanted to. It was these these particular stores that were run by the businesses that you worked for, and often the food there was adulterated. So, I'll give you a couple of examples. See how you feel about these. Milk was watered down with the blended residue of animal brains. That was the way that was the milk was often sold in these truck stores. Thoughts on that? Do you know what? I'll have a black coffee. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I'll have oat milk. That's fine. <laughs> and then generally, if, it, if they weren't buying from the truck stores, people had to rely on local seasonal vegetables. So the cheapest being the onion, which was half a penny for 12. So onions basically were eaten with everything. Now, I'm a fan of an onion. I haven't got a problem with that. Thoughts on that? Are you pro-onion?
2: A friend of mine, his dad thinks that society needs to be completely reordered so that basically we go back to walk into work. No long commutes. Yep. And that we and that we start cooking our own, eating our own vegetables that we've grown ourselves. So you only eat seasonal produce.
0: Okay, so I could tell you in my London garden, I could grow a maximum of four carrots. That is the <laughs> the space that I have available to me outside. I could not make a salad with the amount of earth that I have available out there to be one meal. It'd be a
1: year's work for one meal. <laughs> I've got a... I tell you, I've been running... I've been having running battles in my garden. I've got a pear tree. And all the local wildlife has been coming to pilfer from it. So I caught... I had loads of pears on it. Then one day I came down, I was like, there's about a third of these pears are missing. And then one day I caught a squirrel, like, (laughs) stealing the pears (laughs) of my pear tree. I chased him out with the broom. (laughs) This morning, I was sat there eating some scrambled wood, looking out into the garden. Two parakeets flew down... (laughs) One parakeet started eating the pet, and then the other one started having a fight with the one who, who started eating this. I had to again chase them out. Is it worth mentioning should... you, you
0: live in the Galapagos Islands?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, we should point out that parakeets, bizarrely, are, in, are There are thousands of them in London. Yeah. And I don't know. How, yes. It's. They've they are far and wide, and until I lived in London I thought that was a joke. I thought that the, the entire city of London was taking the piss, but no, they are bloody everywhere.
1: They're all round where I live, in East London. Have you heard the big be- here's the half remembered historical facts about the parakeets that Jimi Hendrix had several and yep. released them. That's a popular rumour. Have you heard that? I have heard yes, that. Yep. that is the other a one was that rumor. they were they brought them into film to make a film and they escaped.
2: Oh my god. The real history lies in the film of The African Queen in 1951. The film stars Humphrey Bogart and Katharine Hepburn were filming Isleworth Studios. The director John uh, Huston wanted the film to look as realistic as possible so he ordered for a flock of parakeets to be brought on set ready for their appearance on the silver screen. The birds became bored of waiting... (laughs) And they yeah, escaped and they've grown stealthily in number ever since.
1: How would you mean they got bored waiting on He's looking at a flock of parakeets. We're losing them. We're losing <laughs> them.
0: I, do, you want to hear, do you want to hear a story of one of the most mortifying things I've ever done? Which yeah. is, I was in a movie a few years ago called Gloves Off, which is a, a British comedy movie about boxing. and the lead, One of the leads in it was Ricky Tomlinson from oh, yeah. The Royal Family. Yeah. Now, I was in my trailer, and um, I went and had a wee, used the toilet, and then I oh, pressed good. the flush, and the flush didn't work. The wee was still there, but there was a loud noise. I didn't know what was going on. I thought, I maybe you just need to wait for it to power up. I kept the button down, and then I heard... Oh, whoa, whoa, what's going on? Oh, no, what's going on? Oh, no, oh, no. I was like, what's going on? That's a bit weird, but <laughs> still get the finger down. Someone came banging on the door. Open it up. What I was doing was my trailer was joined to Ricky Tomlinson's trailer, and I was moving the central partition wall and making his room smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> Like in Indiana Jones, you know that scene? So his desk was coming in on him, everything was falling off the walls. He's going like, oh no, oh God! He nearly crushed Ricky Tomlinson. It was like like the width of Ricky Tomlinson.
1: I thought you were going to say that you did a film with Ricky Tomlinson and Ricky Tomlinson got bored and escaped and that's why there's flocks of Ricky Tomlinson all around London. But he
0: survived, that's the main thing. Okay, <laughs> shall we get back to Victorian food? Now, yes. meat wasn't an option for um, the Victorian poor because it was so expensive. Fish actually was. So, a f- lot, lot of fish was eaten, especially in coastal uh, towns and villages where cod and haddock uh, was eaten a lot. Uh, and in London and in cities, shellfish. So you can see this in the yeah. east end of London. So cockles, mussels, whelks, oysters, and of course, jellied yeah. eels. I mean, have you tried jellied eels? Chris, you grew up in the area where they're sort of sold. Do you, have you tried them? Where they're sold? Well, there's <laughs> There's a shop round the corner <laughs> from you, where there was <laughs> in Wanstead that sold them. I find them
1: disgusting.
0: Well, the way Gross. they were sold then, which I find quite funny, it was, it was from street vendors. Um, you would be served your jelly eels in a cup, and you could put vinegar on it if you wanted or a bit of butter, which would cost extra, but you had to eat it quickly because the vendor would need his cup back.
2: <laughs> God.
0: I think eating That's eels is one grim. thing, but
1: being forced to eat eels at speed... ..where <laughs> the big cube behind hygiene is, like, tutting.
0: <laughs> and if you're worried oh. about hygiene, the vendor would sometimes dip the cup in a bucket of dirty, dirty water before giving it to you, but he often wouldn't. I, I think at that point... It's not rocket science. I'm bringing my own cup. (laughs) (laughs)
2: All
1: right, I'm here to talk to you about the middle classes in Victorian Britain. Now, obviously, talking about middle classes here, quite a large range within the middle classes. You have at the very top, the upper, upper middle classes, the gentry, likely kind of landowning, gentlemen, women, farmers. There's some of them may even have titles, a knighthood, for, for example. They may earn an income from the land. And then you've got down at the bottom, the kind of lower middle classes, the petty bourgeoisie, the white-collar workers or small business owners and shopkeepers that could be found everywhere. They're also as teachers in a country village or bankers or clerks in a market town. I remember the day um, I we learnt about Marxism and I remember saying to my dad, my dad grew up in a flat in Ilford next to the 0406 if you're over that way, <laughs> those tall ones, five of them in like a two-bed flat. And uh, he was quite proud to be working class. And I remember saying to him, oh, I'm learning a bit of Marxism, I said, well, because my dad owns a factory. I was like, well, you own a factory. You own the means to production. Technically, you're middle class now. And he was... Violently angry. I'm not. I'm not. No way.
2: Yeah. um, It has an extraordinary impact on the British psyche class. Mm. And if you if you are told that you are not the class you think you are or relate to or identify as. (laughs) <laughs> that can cause, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, people people get, can get really wound up about it.
1: So the, so the middle classes in Victorian Britain are kind of defined as a, as a society that has kind of a group of people that have no choice but to work. Yeah. But its members in the middle classes were able to secure jobs that were overall far more pleasant than those taken by the working class. And therefore, they could also ascend the social ladder a bit easier. If you want a good example of the social backdrop of a late Victorian middle-class house, apparently Mary Poppins and the Banks family, that's a really good example. You've got maids. The bourgeoisie house was designed to show off, again, this thing about status, demonstrating your status. The middle-class bourgeoisie house was designed to show off possessions and the new riches of wealth made in the professions. Everything was solid, and beauty meant decoration. So the middle classes in Victorian Britain, famous for dollies and drapes, wallpapers, cushions scattered, the latest magazines on the coffee tables, (laughs) bookcases containing all the right sorts of things, household manuals, collections of the three-volume novel, the so-called triple-decker, sheets of music, and there was always a piano in the bourgeoisie home. And just to establish my newfound middle-class roots, we had a piano growing up. And if you need, Old MacDonald had a farm banging out. I can do that
2: on request. God, it sounds like a great life.
1: Lovely, isn't it? Okay, so you're in so far.
2: Yeah, big house. Everyone can see your stuff. It sounds
1: fabulous. So here we go, right? This is the thing. It sounds great. But middle-class life in Victorian Britain, as now, has a vulnerability in financial failure. Bankruptcy haunted this section of society like no other. Downward social mobility was just as likely as the reverse. Small shopkeepers, especially at risk, bankruptcy columns of newspapers were full of grocers, bakers, fruiterers, painters, decorators, drapers and the like who had run out of money. And that's why I think that, and that's, hey, Tom, that's why you're working 20-hour days. It's the, the, you know, the fear. Social mobility downwards is a thing.
2: And I mean, for you, Tom, to to have such a lack of a plan B, (laughs) no wonder you work so hard. You've got fucking nothing. If comedy goes wrong for you, you're dead. Yeah, we, I, I, we
1: want to make this more about Victorian Britain, but I have to tell you, Tom, you are on the precipice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> one, ro- one strong wind away from yeah,
1: falling off the cliff. But here is another thing I'm, I'm really interested to talk about: is that the Victorians? For me, when I think of the Victorians, they are obsessed with sex, but in a really a kind of pious way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they, they, you know, it's it 's all about living the most pious life possible, and there 's a religious element to that William Gladstone, former prime Minister, I'm sure we yep. all know him, the grand old man of Victorian politics, uh, regarded as something of a stiff upstanding paragon of virtue, he would take long, nu- long walks through the streets of London, looking for fallen women, and he would gen- he was generally observed to be rescuing the prettiest ones. And Oh, really? Whenever he would feel a kind of pang of desire, he would beat it out of himself with a whip, self-flagellation.
2: Bloody hell. And this hell. is
1: known. You can People have uh, read his diaries and they know exactly when he did it because he would code in his diaries with a whip symbol when he oh, did wow. it. Every time, every time he Crikey. self-flagellated himself. <laughs>
0: I just leave leave. I just leave that out. Your diary, you, didn't you? I just sort of refocus. Really yeah. Focus yeah and, why do you want to know? For whose benefit is that? Where I'd, you know, if what I'd been up to, what what I had for breakfast, rather than sort of, just, you don't have to put everything yeah. in, do you?
2: Yeah, you, you don't have to be that honest. <laughs> you're, not ta-
0: you're not taking minutes on your life, William. You? <laughs> not everything has to be in there. <laughs>
2: Maybe he was tired and he'd run out of coffee and he, he, thought, he thought, I need to finish this diary entry. If I, if I whip myself, that'll wake me up. I, I reckon. But the second time I'd whip myself, I think to myself, was it that bad? Do I need, do I need to whip myself? Could I, I not just have a stern word with myself? Right, well, I am going to talk about the upper classes, the aristocrats. Now, the interesting thing with the aristocracy, I've met working-class people, I've met middle-class people. The aristocrats, the proper elite, the inner circle, are still a kind of mystery to me. I've I've met one or two, obviously. I've met people, we're friends with people who've gone to Eton. But you're sort of... Your your higher echelons, the the ones who are getting invites to royal weddings and royal funerals and stuff. It's it, just it's not my world. What about you, Tom? No, I haven't. Chris <laughs> in Ilford, Dagenham. I've met a f-
1: I've met a few posh people in my time. Really, really posh people are all right, but there there is an element of their lives that I just don't understand.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You're How like, it the, works. First, the first time I was asked. Which school I'd gone to because they expected to know the public school. I was like, Well I just went to a a school in Camarva and they're like, Oh right (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like on Titanic when Leonardo DiCaprio goes for dinner.
2: Yeah, you're oh oh right. Right. Are you from the Boston, Jameses? Now, Britain's 19th century aristocracy was the most fortunate in the world. This is such a good point when you think about it. Having avoided the fate of the continental elites, you know, dates with a guillotine, poverty, and the whims of enthroned despots, in, in the UK, the barons... Yep, I'm going to do it like I'm, um, like I'm a football pundit. Your barons, your viscounts, your marquises, <laughs> your earls, your dukes—they were just left to make a fortune, either from land or from industry or from commerce or from empire um, or from politics as well. Now they must have been when, when you consider the revolutions that were ha- happening in Europe, they must, have, they must have sat there thinking, thinking themselves, "God, we got away with this, have not we?" <laughs> How have we managed this? we are lucky or sods fair play <laughs> during Victoria's reign no fewer than eight aristocrats from both political parties Liberal and Conservative held the officer of Prime Minister two Viscounts two not the biscuit uh, five <laughs> earls, and a Marquis and many more obviously held cabinet and sub-cabinet rank so almost all the governors uh, the governor generals of India were peers for instance uh, for instance people like Lord Elgin the the, the, the marbles guy uh, Lord Lord Dalhousie and Lord Curzon. Amongst the uh, Prime Ministers, you had the Queen's early favourite, Viscount like Melbourne, uh, the Lord whom she called Uncle. And then you had people like the uh, Marquess of Salisbury. They, they, they were dominating political life in the 1880s and 1890s. But we shouldn't get too carried away because in the... In the even though it was a world of aristocratic government, the most important politicians of the 19th century were Robert Peel, William Gladstone and Disraeli, and they weren't aristocrats. Uh, Well, you know, not really until later in life. They represented the future of British politics. There was a sort of decline of aristocratic power. And then you had the modern, the creation of modern civic life with the middle class at its heart, the kind of civic life that we recognise today. Now, on both sides of politics, you had writers, you had novelists, translators. Uh, Benjamin Disraeli, um, who became the Earl of Beaconsfield, he was noted for a series of One Nation novels. Um, then you had the Earl of Derby, and he was known for his translation of Homer's Iliad. So a bit a bit like some politicians I could name uh, today. They had stuff going on on the side. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, like, um, when
1: I think of the Prime Minister or any kind of, like, modern leader, so much of what I think about their job is, is, like, defence and really sophisticated network of communications and, you know, I imagine their office are very busy, very, you know, a lot of technology there and everything is kind of finely tuned down to the second. And when I think about Prime Ministers in this era, are they just sat doing, like, are you doing nothing most of the time? What are you doing? Just having chats, just walking around having chats.
2: Yeah, I mean, it must have been obviously. Of course, it was hard. Yeah, it's just I don't know. I, I I don't know if the the if the press had the same sort of impact on policy. Um, in the certainly not in the same in the way it would now. I I read Clement Attlee's biography quite recently. And obviously, he was when he was when he was prime minister. The the press was still enormously important. But back then, in the eighteen hundreds, I don't know. It's uh, it's it's interesting. I'm not sure.
1: You're turning out one like a four page newspaper a day, if you're lucky, and there's only probably about thirty blokes who can read it. Yeah, because <laughs> literacies are. so. But those, like, those, oh, no, there's a big scoop in the paper. To, who gives a shit?
2: But those 30 <laughs> blogs think you're great. They think you're doing a brilliant job.
0: It's like, it's like a particular, it's not a particularly popular blog nowadays, especially when, <laughs> when someone runs on their website and they do a blog. And there's 25 followers. Someone does a tweet.
1: They've only got 10 followers.
2: Now, it's easy to forget the aristocracy of Victoria's reign, which is 1837 to ninety one, was a tiny fraction of the population so mid century editions of de Brett's, which also included knights and baronets, run to a sort of seven hundred pages. But in those seven hundred pages, those people wielded most of the economic and political power, and so you know that that group of people, it expanded and contracted throughout the period and some titles went, you know, others were created. The most successful businessmen, people like coal owners such as D.A. Thomas, who went on to be Lord Ronda, and Alfred Thomas, who went on to be Lord Ponterpreet, they were industrialists, but they all made a fortune and they all sought the validation of a peerage. And the thing with those industrialists as well, they they, they were... Absurdly wealthy. So I remember studying Richard Crochet, mm. who was the ironmaster in South Wales, right? Um, so he lived seventeen thirty nine to eighteen ten. So when Wales was industrialising, he was the one, especially in the sort of the Merthyr area, was the one making the, the money out of it. Like he was a partner uh, in the business that started the Cwarter ironworks in Merthyr Tydfil. By modern day standards. He'd be worth about two hundred nine million quid. Wow! Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. I mean, the, the guy had money. <laughs> the,
1: pay, the guy had a mortgage.
2: <laughs> yeah. Here,
1: this is a question we've posed before. What are you spending that money on?
2: Yeah, I remember when we did. I did. I studied him for my GCSEs, and I remember we were given a kind of inventory of his house, and each doorknob was worth a thousand quid, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> others, including people like the Marquises of Boot and the Barons of Tredegar and the Earls of Plymouth, they were bequeathed vast wealth by the growth of industry. So right. this arose because the value of previously very provincial parcels of land, particularly in places like South Wales in the north of England, land which up to that point, up to the Industrial Revolution, had been home to tenant farmers scratching a living, the wealth, the value of that land in increased exponentially once coal and iron were discovered and extracted so you if you owned that lance suddenly then you were sitting on absolute fortune
0: how interesting
2: now the education of the aristocracy was a matter for the public schools as you can imagine eton harrow rugby westminster etc and then the ancient universities oxford cambridge trinity college dublin st andrews edinburgh glasgow and we can get a kind of flavor of, of their outlook and how they were trained, because they were trained for empire. But we can work out how they thought from the magazines they produced, and also in the the kind of this-house debates that they would have. So you still see footage of the um, debate at Oxford. I remember Dizzy Rascal did one. Um, And if you look at the topics they're debating... They're quite forthright for the time. Stuff like this house would view with favour the abolition of the Assembly known as the House of Lords. That's from Queen's College, just in 1883. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? In the opinion of this house, the principle of nationality is pernicious. That's Trinity College in 1891. Yeah. Uh, this house would view with satisfaction a scheme for bringing the railways under state control. As from Pembroke College in March 1887. But obviously, because they're undergraduates and young people, some of them are they're just stupid. They're Some of them some, some are just stupid. <laughs> we we'll house get grown-ups in here. Yeah. <laughs> this house believes the existence of ghosts and other supernatural phenomena. <laughs> Worcester College, March 1887. <laughs> uh in the opinion of this house, beer is the foundation of England's greatness. Lincoln College, November eighteen ninety six.
0: That's also got a real last day of term vibes about it. That one, isn't it? That's <laughs> yeah, the, uh... <laughs> yeah,
2: before your finals, you are pissing about. <laughs> now, the order of precedence also determined that an English peer uh, was of a higher rank than a Scottish peer, um, or a British peer, um, right. or an Irish peer. Uh, there was no concept of Welsh peer since there was no Welsh crown. So, uh, yeah a bit harder to be posh if you're Welsh but that's fine that's something i've come to accept <laughs> i kind of yeah you know, i can, i can live with that time's a great healer <laughs> so there we have it i mean you'd want to be an aristocrat they've definitely got the, the the best deal of the of the of the victorian working middle and upper classes you definitely want to be an aristocrat if you if you have the choice
0: it's amazing like, that the huge divisions as today i mean what what really has changed perfectly honest but if you look at Jelly deals in a cup that has to be handed back to the man who's given you those jelly deals and then the impossible wealth Yeah, at the other end of it. But then, how much has changed, to be honest?
2: God, eating jelly deal out of a clean clean cup. (laughs) Life doesn't doesn't get any better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it. Uh, There's only one thing left for me to do and that's the... The naked, very transparent (laughs) request for a a five-star review. Um, Yet again, I'm going to give you the same old spiel that it helps algorithms. In reality, it helps me sleep at night. I look at your five-star reviews and I think to myself, finally I've achieved something. I can go to my grave... And uh, I've talked about this a lot with John Robbins The idea of a digital gravestone Which is just my five star review <laughs> Scrolling on a gravestone for the, rest of, for, for the rest of time People are like oh yeah 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 Oh what a time was a good podcast Look at that
1: you know, you know there's this trend in Japan For tombstones that have QR codes That link to YouTube videos of the individual's life Maybe your QR code could Just linked to all the lovely reviews
2: Oh yeah is that true? That sounds. Oh yeah, and people, people people walk past my digital gravestone and go, "That was a life well lived, wasn't it?"
1: <laughs> Average of four point nine stars. Look Very
2: at good. all of his podcast reviews.
0: I'd, I'd have a QR code that just links to that scene where Dale Boy falls through the bar. I think that's just quite nice and enjoyable. That if you're in a place in a place of grief, maybe that's what you
1: need.
2: Yeah, yeah. Everyone just finds a, that funny. Just a link to my favourite memes. <laughs> exactly.
1: All right, that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.
2: Goodbye.